2 Samuel chapter 8. In the course of time, David defeated the Philistines and subdued them. And he took Metheg Amar from the control of the Philistines. David also defeated the Moabites. He made them lie down on the ground and measured them off with a length of cord. Every two lengths of them were put to death, and the third length was allowed to live. So the Moabites became subject to David and brought him tribute. Moreover, David defeated Hadadezer, son of Rehob, king of Zobah, when he went to restore his monument at the Euphrates River. David captured a thousand of his chariots, 7,000 charioteers and 20,000 foot soldiers. He hamstrung all but a hundred of the chariot horses. When the Aramaeans of Damascus came to help Hadadezer, king of Zobah, David struck down 22,000 of them. He put garrisons in the Aramean kingdom of Damascus and the Arameans became subject to him and brought him tribute. The Lord gave David victory wherever he went. David took the gold shields that belonged to the officers of Hadadezer and brought them to Jerusalem. From Teba and Berathai, towns that belonged to Hadadezer, King David took a great quantity of bronze. When Toi, king of Hamath, heard that David had defeated the entire army of Hadadezer, he sent his son Joram to King David to greet him and congratulate him on his victory in battle over Hadadezer, who had been at war with Toi. Joram brought with him articles of silver, gold and bronze. King David dedicated these articles to the Lord as he had done with the silver and gold from all the nations he had subdued, Edom and Moab, the Ammonites and the Philistines and Amalek. He also dedicated the plunder taken from Hadadezer, son of Rehob, king of Zobah. And David became famous after he returned from striking down 18,000 Edomites in the Valley of Salt. He put garrisons throughout Edom and all the Edomites became subject to David. The Lord gave David victory wherever he went. David reigned over all Israel, doing what was just and right for all his people. Joab, son of Zeruiah, was over the army. Jehoshaphat, son of Ahilud, was recorder. Zadok, son of Ahitub, and Ahimelech, son of Abiathar, were priests. Zeruiah was secretary. Benaiah, son of Jehoiada, was over the Kerithites and Pelethites. And David's sons were priests. Thanks, Ben. Uh, well, good evening, everyone. It's good to be here with you tonight and to be opening this part of God's Word. As we continue our series through uh, the book of 2 Samuel, will you pray with me as we uh, come to reflect on uh, and learn from this part of God's Word? Let's pray. Father God, we, we do thank you for your Word. We thank you that uh, you don't leave us in the dark, but you have spoken to us. You've revealed your plans, your, your purposes, your will for us. And Father, we ask that you'd help us now to be shaped according to your word in how we think, uh, in, uh, in what our hearts long for, and in uh, how we, we view this world around us. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. I want to start by asking uh, you to consider your uh, outlook on life. How optimistic are you about the future? How optimistic are you about the state of the world. What's your outlook on life? 
Now, depending on your perspective and depending on your circumstances, maybe depending on the, the various voices and influences that, uh, that you listen to that shape you, you might be kind of inclined one way or another. Uh, you might say, look, after a rough couple of years, uh, things are actually looking up. And so, you know, I'm, uh, maybe you, you're keen to go places, do things, and you've got a sense of hope and, and positivity. You want to engage in life. And maybe there's lots of good things on your horizon. Or maybe on the other hand, maybe you, you, you see the, other, the, the past couple of years as just really part of a, a bigger downward spiral. There's all sorts of things to be concerned about, like global pressures and economic factors and government control and wars and resources and climate changes and challenges. And Maybe I should stop while I'll just depress us all, but you could mount a case for things being pretty bleak having a bleak outlook on life and the state of the world and the future. What's the answer? What's the way forward? What outlook should we have? Are we just left to the, the whims of, of our own circumstances and perspectives and the voices that we listen to and that shape how we perceive things? I think it's worth thinking about and considering who and what voices we do listen to how much we're influenced by those things, because we are all inevitably influenced by the, the diet information, the, the news feed that, that drips into us or perhaps pours into us, um, mainstream media, social media, news feeds. They're designed to, to reinforce the same message and confirm us in whichever message it is that we've bought into. You might, uh, I don't know if you've seen this, um, who's seen this? Does anyone recognise this, this image? It's from a Netflix documentary called The Social Dilemma. People seen The Social Dilemma? Some people have. If you haven't, you should see The Social Dilemma. I don't know if it's still on there. It's a couple of years old now, but um, fascinating, terrifying. Um, it points out that, and you're probably already familiar with this, if you're not, here's a revelation, social media algorithms learn what information and articles get our attention, and so, lo and behold, they feed us more of the same stuff because they want to keep our attention. And what that does is it just confirms us in our thinking, and, and, and almost inevitably, it polarises us against other ways of thinking because it seems, well, at least from our perspective, that, well, everyone's saying the same thing. But that's just, that's the same thing that, you, that we're hearing. It's worth considering what voices we're listening to and how much we're influenced by them. Just get rid of social media and you'll be right. Um, we're influenced, obviously, by a lot of other voices as well. Uh, as we can consider that and think through the voices that we are shaped by, if we are Christian people, if our trust is in God, well, it may be stating the obvious, but our outlook on life, on the future, on the state of the world, it ought to be shaped and influenced not only by our circumstances and our perspectives and the various things that feed into us, but it ought to be fundamentally shaped by God's word, by what God says. And in his word, in the Bible, in, in passages such as the one before us tonight, he gives us a true perspective uh, a perspective on life, on the future, on the state of the world. Now, you might be thinking, Gee, that, I don't get that, John. I mean, at first glance, this passage might seem like a, kind of a merely a, a, an ancient and irrelevant picture of life from so long ago with David defeating all these different people with strange names. You might think this is so, so far removed from our own situation in 21st century Australian life. But actually, this picture that's given to us it should shape our outlook on life and how we understand things 
Because 2 Samuel 8 gives us a picture of God's kingdom in Israel under the reign of King David. And that paints a picture for us of God's kingdom today under the reign of the great, the greatest son of David, Jesus, our king. So look with me as we dig into this part of God's word. Let's allow it to shape our outlook on life, on the future, on the state of our world. Chapter 8, look there with me, begins with the words, in the course of time. Now, this is a, a, a sequence marker or a, a section marker, if you like. But the events of chapter 8 don't necessarily follow chronologically from chapter 7. In fact, chapter 8 includes events from throughout different times in David's life and reign. Uh, for example, it, it, um, the defeat of the Amalekites is mentioned in verse 12 of chapter 8. That actually took place in, before David was king. In, it's re- recorded in chapter 1. Uh, the defeat of the Ammonites is mentioned here, but it's recorded after this in chapter 10. So chapter 8 doesn't necessarily follow chapter 7 chronologically, but rather it follows it thematically. That is, chapter 8 is the the outworking of the promises that are made in chapter 7. In particular, you can turn back a page in your Bible or it'll come up on the screen, God promised David in chapter 7 verse 10, He promised him this, he said, And I will provide a place for my people Israel and will plant them so that they can have a home of their own and no longer be disturbed. Wicked people will not oppress them anymore as they did at the beginning and have done done ever since the time I appointed leaders over my people Israel. I will also give you rest from all your enemies. This promise of a place for Israel, rest from, from all their enemies, God gave the promise, chapter 7, chapter 8, we see this fulfilled as the Lord gives David victory over Israel's enemies in every direction. Now, it's helpful in in understanding this chapter to know where these these different places are, Uh, all these places with uh, strange names, which Ben did a a superb job of pronouncing. Um, Firstly, we see the Philistines, uh, verse 1, in the course of time, David defeated the Philistines and subdued them. And he took Method Amar from the control of the Philistines. Now, the Philistines were Israel's long-standing enemy. Uh, they were to the, here we go, west. It's that way, right? To the west um, of Israel. Then there's the Moabites in, uh, in verse 2. They were to the, it's going to work. Here we go. Come on. There we go. Um, in uh, verse 2, they're to the, to the sort of to the east, southeast. Uh, then there's the uh, um, Arameans to the north. Uh, there's a few different uh, bunches of Arameans mentioned here. So verse 3 talks about Hadadezer, son of Rehob, king of Zobar, uh, which is there. Uh, Zobar was a city in, uh, in Aram in the far north. Uh, then it also mentions in the nearer north, Damascus, just below that in verse 5. Further on, verses 12 to 14, there's Edom uh, in the south and Ammon in the east. So what we've got here is David is victorious in every direction. This is the fulfillment of God's promise to give Israel a land, to give them rest from their enemies. And notice this is God's doing. Verse 6 and verse 14 both finish with this refrain that says, the Lord gave David victory wherever he went. Or literally, the, the Lord saved David wherever he went. God delivered on his promise by giving his chosen king victory over his enemies. 
Now, I expect we can see that, that kind of big picture clear enough, especially as you understand the geography. This is, is God giving victory to David in every direction. But perhaps we get a little bit stuck on some of the details. Like, what's with this killing of two-thirds of the Moabites? Verse 2, it says... Um, there we are, sorry, that one. David also defeated the Moabites. He made them lie down on the ground and measured them off with a length of cord. Every two lengths of them were put to death and the third length was allowed to live. Now when we hear that, we might, uh, we might struggle with this, this mass execution of two-thirds of the, of the army. And, and I, I think in a way, that's right that we do. It's right that we, that we struggle with that. Um, the Bible tells us that God has no pleasure in the death of anyone. It says that in Ezekiel 18, verse 23. It's the first point. It's right to struggle. Secondly, it's worth remembering that just because something is recorded in the Bible doesn't necessarily mean that it is approved by the Bible. Um, David wasn't the perfect king. Uh, we'll see that in the coming weeks. We can't be, be confident that everything he did was right. But that said... Our job as humble Bible readers is actually to learn from what the Scriptures say, not to make our own independent moral judgments over it. And we'd have to say, actually, in the, in the context of this chapter, David's actions are presented uh, very positively. So, for example, verse 15 says, David reigned over all Israel doing what was just and right for all his people. So rather than seeing this, uh, this treatment of the Moabites as some sort of cruelty... Perhaps we should actually see this as God's justice being carried out against an enemy, the Moabites, who had continually opposed and mocked God. And the fact that a third of them were spared should actually be seen as an act of mercy. We're not told why David spared them, why he was merciful, but the fact that he was merciful is hardly grounds for accusing him of injustice. In fact, for God to spare anyone who has set themselves up against him is an act of grace and mercy. I notice also there that the Moabites who were spared became subject to David, end of verse 2, and they brought him tribute. They bowed their knee to the king, even if it wasn't done so willingly. It gets a little echo, a reminder, that in the end, every knee will bow before God's ultimate king. Every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, whether willingly or unwillingly. But then what about this, uh, this guy, Hadadezer, and his chariots and soldiers and horses? Verse 3 says, Moreover, David defeated Hadadezer, son of Rehob, king of Zobah, when he went to restore his monument at the Euphrates River. David captured a thousand of his chariots, 7,000 charioteers, and 20,000 foot soldiers. He hamstrung all but a hundred of the chariot horses. The picture here is one of, of total conquest. I notice the word defeated. He defeated Hadadezer. This word's actually repeated seven times throughout the passage. Uh, literally, the word is he struck down. You see it in, uh, it's too small to read, but you get the idea. Verse 1, verse 2, verse 3, verse 5, verse 9, verse 10, verse 13. David struck down, defeated God's enemies. This is the Lord's anointed, who, in the words of Psalm 2, is breaking his enemies with a rod of iron and dashing them to pieces like pottery. But then what about the hamstringing of these horses? Um, if you don't know, hamstringing a horse makes it unusable for war. Uh, it can't run. 
Uh, apparently, this was common in, in warfare in the ancient world. Uh, so you'd weaken your enemy's military capability. It's kind of like destroying your enemy's um, weapons or ammunition. David's preventing his enemy from reforming an army. He captures the chariots. He captures the, the charioteers and foot soldiers and disables the chariot horses, except for a hundred of them, which is curious. Why did he keep a hundred of the horses? Uh, at this point in Israel's history, they didn't use chariots. In fact, in, in other passages, it sort of speaks of trusting in chariots as being opposed to trusting in the Lord. Is this a hint that David's considering experimenting with chariots himself? I don't, I don't know, but we're speculating at this point. Perhaps it raises the question for us without providing an answer to hint that there is, there's more to come and we'll see more of David uh, in the chapters ahead. But this first section finishes verse 5 with the subduing of another northern Aramean city, Damascus, with David striking down 22,000 of them. He then establishes garrisons uh, there such that they become subject to him. And verse 6 summarises, as I said, with that refrain, the Lord gave David victory wherever he went. This is God's king, victorious over God's enemies. There's no question of, of who's in control. Is the world going down the drain under the control of evil leaders? No. The kings of the earth, they, they might rise up and shake their puny fists against the Lord and against his anointed, in the, as in the words of Psalm 2. But as Psalm 2 says, in response, the one enthroned in heaven laughs. The Lord scoffs at them. He rebukes them in his anger and terrifies them in his wrath, saying, I have installed my king on Zion, my holy mountain. This is a picture of, of David's kingdom in which... He has victory wherever he went. But secondly, we're at point two on the outline, if you're following along. This, this kingdom involves the wealth of the nations being brought to Jerusalem. Now, a nation's wealth represents and, and expresses its power. Um, even today, we, we rank nations according to their wealth. And their, their importance according to their wealth. Um, just as an aside, here's a list I found online. It's a bit dated from 2018, but notice Australia. Can you see that? It's a pretty small. Australia's number five in terms of overall wealth um, in the world. And it's also number five in terms of per capita wealth. There are three countries that are in the, the top ten of both, Australia, USA and Canada. And Australia is actually... Uh, more wealthy per capita than both the US and Canada. Um, there's no real relevance to this other than, you know, it's a little interesting tidbit of information, other than to say that wealth is, is a measure of power and significance. And with the defeat of these enemies of God, their wealth and power is, well, is surrendered, is handed over. The, the Moabites, verse 2, it says, the Moabites became subject to David and brought him tribute. Uh, the Arameans, verse 6, became subject to him and brought him tribute. Verse 7, David took the gold shields that belonged to the officers of Hadadezer and brought them to Jerusalem. Uh, verse 8, from Tebah and Berathai, towns that belonged to the Hadadezer, King David took a great quantity of bronze. So the glory and the wealth of the nations is brought to God's king. Uh, even through their defeat, in the case of uh, 
of the Philistines, Moabites and Arameans, either through their defeat or, or through their willing submission, which we see with this, this next guy, who I'm going to call Two. Um, ben said Toy, I don't know, I think Toy is the Hebrew. I go Two like you. Um, uh, now Two is the king of Hamath, that's also in the north near Zobah. And then we read in verse 9, when Two, king of Hamath, uh, heard that David had defeated the entire army of Hadadezer, he sent his son Joram to King David to greet him and congratulate him on his victory in battle over Hadadezer, who had been at war with two. Joram brought with him articles of silver, of gold and of bronze. Now two is, a, you have to say, is a smart political operator. He recognises David's supremacy and he acts quickly to align himself with David willingly. He sends his son to greet him, to congratulate him, to present him with gifts of silver, gold and bronze. Again, this is a picture of, of Psalm 2, where the, the kings of the earth will bow down their knee to God's king, either unwillingly or, in this case, they'll bow before him willingly. But notice what David does with all this wealth. He doesn't amass it for himself, as was often the case with kings. And, and is often the case with kings and leaders. He doesn't amass it for his own glory. No, verse 11, it says, King David dedicated these articles to the Lord, as he had done with the silver and gold from all the nations he had subdued. All glory, all wealth, all power belongs to the Lord, the God over all the earth. And, and David knew this. Incidentally, this, this gold, silver, bronze was eventually used in the construction of the temple. You can read about that in uh, 1 Chronicles verse 18, it says that. David knew that it all belonged to the Lord. And there's a lesson for us there. As for ancient Israel, so too for us. All that we have, all that we own, belongs to the Lord our God, the maker of heaven and earth. Now, we can tend to think that, oh, you know, this is, my, this is my money, this is my possession, but it all belongs to the Lord. Our wealth, our possessions, our skills, our energy, it's all entrusted to us from God for us to, to use and to steward. But it all belongs to him ultimately because he is God. If you're not convinced of that, just consider how much of your wealth you can take with you when you die. It's not yours, it's not ours, it all belongs to the Lord. So this picture of David's kingdom, what have we got? We've got victory wherever he went. We've got the wealth of the nations brought to Jerusalem. And thirdly, this kingdom involves a great name for the king. Point three, verse 13 says, and David became famous after he returned from striking down 18,000 Edomites in the Valley of Salt. Literally, uh, it says David made a name when he returned from striking down the Edomites. He became famous. God had promised in, in uh, chapter 7, verse 9, he said, Now I will make your name great, like the names of the greatest men on earth. God promised that, and here he fulfills this promise. Through the victory that God gave David, his name is made great. Again, can you see this points us to, David, to, to, to Jesus from David's kingdom. We see Jesus, the one who through his victory is exalted to the highest place and given a name that is above every name. 
that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, as it says in Philippians 2. So this world that we live in has not been left to its own devices. It's not been left to the whims of godless rulers and authorities. Sometimes it might appear like it, it has. But the reality is that Jesus is the victorious king overall. His name has already been made great and he will one day return and set all things right. We can take great comfort from that, that God's kingdom has a great king with a great name. Fourthly and finally, what we see in this picture of David's kingdom is justice and righteousness for all of his people. Verse 15 gives us this glorious account of David's reign. It says there, David reigned over all Israel, doing what was just and right for all his people. Don't we long for a world where that's the case, where where justice is consistently upheld, where righteousness is consistently carried out? Now, David wasn't the perfect king. Uh, We'll see that in the coming weeks. But this picture here of of the kingdom of God shows that that it's characterised by justice and righteousness for all God's people. And this is ours through Jesus, the ultimate son of David, the one who now rules with perfect justice and righteousness for all his people. We don't yet see that fully expressed in this world. But this is what we long for. This is what we We pray for, when we pray, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And this is what we we seek to live out as his people. We long for this, we pray for this, we we seek to live it out, to see his justice and righteousness expressed in in our own lives, in the lives of those around us, in in, in in the world around us. So God gives us here, a in 2 Samuel 8, a picture of David's kingdom. The victory, the wealth, the name that God gave him, the the justice and righteousness that characterizes the the kingdom of God's appointed king. And that helps us because it gives us a a shadow or a a miniature or or an illustration that points forward to the far greater reality of what God has done, what he is doing, what he will do through the ultimate son of David, our king and Lord and saviour, Jesus Jesus came some thousand years after David and through him God defeated far greater enemies than the Philistines and Moabites and Arameans and Edomites and Ammonites. Jesus defeated our greatest enemies. He defeated sin and Satan and death. Now, that may be a familiar truth, but I want us to to hear this afresh and to let it sink in. You may feel like you're up against all sorts of things in this fallen and broken and rebellious world. And and we do struggle with all sorts of things in all sorts of ways. But the greatest things that threaten us have been defeated by Jesus. He is the victorious king, our victorious king. Uh, 1 Corinthians 15 speaks of the enemies of sin and death in this way. It says, the sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. Now, now death is our enemy. I mean, it's, it's kind of obvious. It hangs over all of us. We will all die one day. It confronts us. 
But you know, the worst thing about death, the, the sting of death, is not death. The sting of death is, notice there, sin. It's the condemnation from God that it rightly provokes. That's the greatest thing that threatens sinful humanity. But, it continues, but thanks be to God, he gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ, through him who, who died for us to, to take the sting of death, that is to bear the consequence of our sin for us, to bring us forgiveness and life, our, our enemy has been defeated. Similarly, Colossians 2 speaks of this forgiveness and freedom and victory in these ways. It says, when you were dead in your sins and in the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made you alive with Christ. He forgave us all our sins, having cancelled the charge of our legal indebtedness, which stood against us and condemned us. He has taken it away, nailing it to the cross. And having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. The spiritual powers and authorities that, that would condemn us have been disarmed, have been triumphed over by the cross. Jesus has defeated our enemy, the devil. As it says, thirdly and finally in Hebrews 2, since the children have flesh and blood, he too shared in their humanity so that by his death he might break the power of him who holds the power of death, that is the devil, and free those who all their lives were held in slavery by their fear of death. We don't need to live our lives as slaves to the fear of death because the devil has been defeated. And so beyond death stands not, not accusation and condemnation for our sin but forgiveness and eternal life in the kingdom of God where perfect justice, perfect righteousness will be done. You see, our outlook on life, on, on the future, on this world around us, it, it might be coloured by all sorts of things, by all sorts of joys and all sorts of challenges, by different perspectives and different things that influence us, but ultimately we can live this life Resting in the knowledge that, that God has already placed his king upon his heavenly throne. Jesus is ruling over this world. He is victorious over our greatest enemies of sin and Satan and death. All glory, all power, all wealth belong to him. His name is exalted above every name. And one day, every knee will bow before him, whether willingly or unwillingly. I hope and pray that each one of us will bow our knee before him willingly, that we'll do so now and that we will live with the joy of living under his justice, under his righteousness, both now and forever. As we live for his kingdom, even as we live in this messed up and rebellious world, and as we pray, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Let's pray now. Lord God Almighty, our loving, gracious Heavenly Father, we do thank and praise you that you have established your King, the Lord Jesus, who is victorious over all enemies, over sin, over Satan, over death. 
We thank and praise you that all glory and wealth and power belongs to him. That Jesus has the name above all names. That justice and righteousness will be done. Father, help us to live in light of the reality of your coming kingdom. To live to praise your name. To rest in the knowledge that, that Jesus is king. That he has defeated our greatest enemies, and to bow our knee willingly before him. We pray this in his name. Amen.